This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Quote, This should be understood, that the goal of civilization is sedentary culture and luxury. When civilization reaches that goal, it turns toward corruption and starts being senile, as happens in the natural life of living beings. Indeed, we may say that the qualities of character resulting from sedentary culture and luxury are identical with corruption. Man is a man only inasmuch as he is able to procure for himself useful things and to repel harmful things, and inasmuch as his character is suited to making efforts to this effect. The sedentary person cannot take care of his needs personally. He may be too weak because of the tranquility he enjoys, or he may be too proud because he was brought up in prosperity and luxury. Both things are blameworthy. He also is not able to repel harmful things because he has no courage as a result of luxury and his upbringing under the impact of education and instruction. He thus becomes dependent upon a protective force to defend him. He then usually becomes corrupt with regard to his religion too. The luxury and his subservience to it have corrupted him, and his soul has been stamped by habits of luxury, as we have stated. There are only very rare exceptions. When the strength of a man and then his character and religion are corrupted, his humanity is corrupted, and he becomes, in effect, transformed into an animal. This can be found in every dynasty. It has thus become clear that the stage of sedentary culture is the stopping point in the life of civilizations and dynasties. End quote. That was from Ibn Khaldun's Muhadima, chapter 4, section 18. And it's a wonderful summary of the general principles outlined in that work. We've also found those principles in the thought of the ancient Greeks, and we find them echoed by Friedrich Nietzsche. Perhaps this is unsurprising because Ibn Khaldun would naturally have the same view of luxury as he just outlined as itself identical with corruption, because Ibn Khaldun was also a student of the Greeks, just as Nietzsche was. Abd ar-Rahman Abu Zayd ibn Muhammad ibn Muhammad ibn Khaldun al-Hadrami is his full name, so hopefully you'll forgive me if we simply refer to him as Ibn Khaldun. He lived in the 14th and 15th centuries at the intersection of East and West of Muslim and Christian civilization. He claimed descent from Yemeni Arabs who'd immigrated to Andalusia in Spain in the 8th century. During this time, when Ibn Khaldun's ancestors lived there, much of Spain was part of the Muslim world. By the time Ibn Khaldun was born, his family had moved to the other side of the Mediterranean, in Tunis. There was not only a thriving tradition of Arab scholarship, but the study of the Greek philosophers was kept alive within the Arab world. Khaldun lived at a time when social mobility and interconnectivity were at its peak in the Mediterranean amongst the Muslim world, and he lived in many places throughout. He served as a judge in Cairo and met personally with the famed conqueror Timur, also known as Tamerlan, upon the conqueror's request. As a well-traveled man who held high offices, met with great kings, and had access to the works of the Muslim, Christian, Greek, and Hebrew canons, Ibn Khaldun became one of the most fascinating philosophical figures, not just of the ancient Near East, but all of human history, in my opinion. In fact, history itself is Ibn Khaldun's focus, and his project is to create a theory of history, an explanation of how human societies develop, thrive, decline, and fall. 
the processes and patterns by which this happens, and the contributing causes. This is something, by the way, that we still don't really have today, insofar as historians by and large tend to be resistant to treating their field as a hard science. Because if history were to be regarded as a hard science, well, for one, it might threaten our idea of our absolute free will, right? And such deterministic processes governing human affairs are kind of scary to contemplate. It would mean that we would treat history as a scientific discipline that would then have to generate predictions about the future. That's how hypotheses are tested and then verified or falsified, by making a prediction of what will happen and then testing it. You'll find that most historians are somewhat hesitant about making such predictions, therefore. They probably don't want their understanding to be tested in such a way. But nevertheless, that is the idea that Ibn Khaldun's theory offers to us, that he's driving at. An actual science of history by which one identifies certain societal dynamics that always produce the same outcome, so long as the same factors are aligned. Ibn Khaldun is therefore an extraordinary figure, and I would argue he's centuries ahead of his time. Interestingly, we do see that some of the things that he perceives might be informed by the Greek writers we've discussed earlier in the season. And even though Ibn Khaldun has no direct line of influence to Nietzsche, um, I think that's why both men might agree in several important respects. I would go so far as to argue that what Nietzsche implies in rough outline through various observations throughout his published and unpublished uh, canon, Ibn Khaldun gives us in the form of an explicit, well-thought-out system. Khaldun's theory of history is Nietzsche's suggestion of eternal return when applied to the political and thus to the historical level, that the tragic story of civilization recurs again and again due to structural factors having to do with the nature of human social organization. Khaldun sees the operations of economics and geopolitics as ironclad in governing human affairs. But it is interesting how his Muslim faith seems to inform his ideas as well, because by interpreting history through the Islamic lens, Khaldun is viewing human nature and human society as having been ordained by God, and thus unalterable by our free will. To put the same idea into secular terms, we might say that Khaldun perceives that the willpower or freedom of choice or moral character of individuals in their various times and places throughout history will not be sufficient to change the overarching pattern, because larger structures, larger powers than individual human wills are at work here. Ibn Khaldun, in his foreword to the Muhadima, asserts the notion of history as a science, or in the terms he puts it here, actually, as a branch, a branch of philosophy, but sort of in the sense that we might talk about natural philosophy. Philosophy as it was once understood, as encompassing all the disciplines striving to attain to the truth. Khaldun writes, quote, The inner meaning of history involves speculation and an attempt to get at the truth subtle explanation of the causes and origins of existing things, and deep knowledge of the how and why of events. History, therefore, is firmly rooted in philosophy. It deserves to be accounted a branch of it. End quote. So, history should be accounted as a branch of philosophy. This is, you know, when we think about the way Nietzsche thought of Thucydides as the exemplar of sophist culture. The, the sophists are typically considered a philosophical school, you know, a school that taught rhetoric, among other things. But Nietzsche thinks that their most exemplary member is Thucydides, a historian, right? We might think about Machiavelli and how his theories of history are 
also philosophical and attempt to get at these first principles and explain rather than just describe, right? Similarly, Ibn Khaldun takes on history as the task of finding those whys, those hows, and he contrasts that with the portrayal of history as though it were simply the cataloging of a series of events or figures, right, and lifetimes and uh, so on and so forth, as if history were simply the surface-level task of accounting for things that happened. The true historian attempts instead to come up with an explanation, a knowledge of how and why it happened. And if we don't do this and simply see the procession of figures and events as this chaotic or inexplicable series of happenings as something unpredictable and senseless, then Khaldun charges we're just expending no effort to get to the truth, right? We are, as Hegel might say, describing the world but not knowing the world. We're cataloging, putting things into categories and into sequences, which basically means just labeling, but it doesn't get us closer to in understanding. It just means knowing what happened and being able to repeat the date that something happened, but without knowing why. And uh, so that's sort of like that old saying, uh, history is just one damn thing after another, right? I think that was Mark Twain, right? Which is intended to be a tongue-in-cheek saying, but that is how a lot of modern historians will sort of talk about history because now in this post-structuralist, post-modern world, many people are so resistant to having any sort of imposed narrative. Um, but Khaldun thinks that that's a mistake. Uh, in order to understand why history unfolded as it did, we have to overcome a number of misconceptions and myths also, many of which Khaldun attacks or debunks at the beginning of the work. Um, a lot of them are sort of specific to his time and place, but he says that the misunderstandings about history are many because, quote, the critical eye, as a rule, is not sharp, end quote. So after spending some time outlining the errors of these other historians, Khaldun puts forward in his preliminary remarks the scope of the territory covered by history as a discipline in the way that he wants us to think about it and understand it. He says that history, quote, is information about human social organization, which itself is identical with world civilization. It deals with such conditions affecting the nature of civilization as, for instance, savagery and sociability, group feelings, and the different ways by which one group of human beings achieves superiority over another. End quote. So this is the way Khaldun sees history. History makes its subject the level of the social organization. We don't approach history as a discipline as solely concerned with individuals, uh, nor with the entire human race as an amorphous blob, right? We study humans at the social level. We study changes at the social level, at the level of states or tribes or religions. In some sense, history is the study that sort of makes these structures, these national structures, these political structures, these social structures, to be the primary level of analysis. And even though there are sort of theories of history, like the great man theory of history, that may be very similar to something like what Nietzsche would put forward, you still have to fundamentally understand the operative powers as these power structures rather than just individuals. Because even those individuals, those great men, we would only count somebody amongst the ranks of the great men if they were relevant to the destinies of large collectives of people or if large collectives of people answer to them, right? These are sort of the people at the top of the social hierarchy who are important because of their effect on the power structure as a whole, right? Um, we should also note here that Khaldun is describing the history of the pre-modern world. That's sort of another caveat we should add to this. Um, so warfare is very common. 
It's far less brutal than the wars of the 20th century, but it's more of an accepted reality of human life. We have to take a step back from our own age and, and the, the long peace that we live in and consider that this used to be a very normal thing. Now, he outlines three very important concepts in his preliminary remarks that we read from there. Savagery, sociability, and group feeling. Group feeling is a translation of a neologism that Ibn Khaldun employs, asabia. The exact meaning of the term asabia is a bit nuanced and may not come fully forward in the idea of group feeling, right? But as a basic delineation of the idea, I think the term group feeling is not a bad translation. For a longer description, Muhammad Talbi defines Asabia, quote, at one and the same time, the cohesive force of the group, the conscience that it has of its own specificity and collective aspirations, and the tension that animates it and impels it ineluctably to seek power through conquest, end quote. So, <laughs> in this idea of Asabia, as Talby puts it, uh, it sounds like something right out of Nietzsche, right? Even though it's ostensibly a measure of a group's capacity for cooperation and collective power, right? Or collective action, which is usually the kind of thing that people think Nietzsche would be against or would, like, reflexively dismiss or something. But I don't think that's true at all. I think Nietzsche recognized that you have to treat with power as it actually exists and not as you would like it to be. And power exists at this collective level, as we've said. The group is powerful. It has its own distinct will to power. As Talby puts it, it has a specific expression of its will to power that it has a sense of or a feeling for. Um, and that is separate from the individual, and it's stronger from, than the individual. For better or for worse, the individual's expression of their own specific will to power is sort of hemmed in by the superior power structure of the group. Nietzsche does attempt, I think, to show avenues of escape from the consciousness of the collective, from the morality of the collective. But he does not prescribe being at war with the collective morality, nor does he condemn this state of affairs where the collective is the greater power as like lamentable, since for one, that's always been the way that things are, and since for most people this binding together, this being bound together with this shared feeling, that's their only viable means of existence, right? Nietzsche's main critique of collective power structures is that they always move to ossify into stasis, after which it begins to decay. His theory of the case is that the only way to rejuvenate it is with these exceptional individuals. Um, you know, literally, exceptions to the rule, right? People who we might think of like a genetic mutation on the cultural level, right? They provide a new gene or alter an old one and advance the collective culture into a new state. And the most individual of human beings, the most exceptional among them, are always considered wicked or immoral because they vary most greatly from the collective morality. But it's those individuals who prompt a transformation of the whole. As Nietzsche says, it's the wicked, evil, immoral people that have advanced mankind the farthest. Khaldun, on the other hand, coming from his background in Islamic jurisprudence, is not concerned with transforming the social order as such. He's more concerned with the power of the collectivity as this moderating force between state and religion, between worldly power and what is moral, right? Between the law, which is to say what we make mandatory by force, and the inner spiritual life of the people, the relation between them. Asabia comes right out of this concept of consensus, which is contained within Islamic law, as the socially binding element of the religion. In this social consensus, this shared feeling, this group feeling, the people are unified 
in their religion and able to realize its moral ideals in the political realm. That's more or less what Asabia is. So I would say that Nietzsche and Khaldun both recognize the power of Asabia. They both perceive that the power of the collective waxes and wanes according to its Asabia, a quality which any social group can possess to varying degrees. Um, obviously, Nietzsche doesn't have the word Asabia at his disposal, but he understands this phenomenon very well, I think. Nietzsche, for his part, tries to show you a bypath that leads out of the power of the collective. Ibn Khaldun is not concerned with that. He's more concerned with, um, I, I would say, instructing the rulers and legislators of future ages so that they can understand why Asabia declines in a given collective, what causes it to wax and wane. And to help understand this process the same way we might understand the tide coming in and out, or the, for that matter, the moon waxing and waning, right? Um, I, th I get the impression Khaldun would like to see that collective power endure for as long as possible, perhaps sort of matching with Machiavelli in that respect, as somebody who sees the endurance of the state or the social order as a value unto itself. But nevertheless, because this is a sort of natural process, a negative feedback loop, Khaldun would not really assert that we can ever create a state that would last forever and seems to think it's been ordained by God that uh, human history will have this cyclical character. Nevertheless, the point is, both men have sort of a subtly nuanced position. Nietzsche is at odds with the collective, but is not at war with it. Ibn Khaldun is for it and wishes for it to thrive, even though he knows that it always declines, because Asabia always eventually declines. Asabia relates to the other two concepts we brought up, what is translated here as savagery and sociability, insofar as the nomadic peoples, the savages, have a rising Asabia, whereas the sedentary people have a declining Asabia. Normally, we're accustomed to hearing a term like savagery in a negative connotation as people who are less developed, but Ibn Khaldun doesn't really mean these terms, this term to have those connotations. Um, he does speak about the quote-unquote savages negatively to some extent, but his entire theory is in some sense premised on their superiority, at least in terms of uh, realizing their goals through you know, applying force in the world. He also says that they're overall more moral people and tend to be more uh, open to you know, religious discipline and things like that, right? even though they're very uneducated. We'll get, we'll get into that more as we keep going, uh, what Khaldun says about the... Uh, the nomadic peoples. But as in the quote we read at the beginning, even though a sedentary culture seems to always appear as the goal of every civilization, as every society always strives to increase its wealth and to increase its well-being, the weakening effect that that well-being has on its inhabitants then eventually leads to their being unable to fend off those who live outside of civilization, who are not living in well-being. And after a number of generations, the supposedly more barbaric peoples move in and overthrow the settled, sedentary, uh, supposedly more advanced peoples. Ibn Khaldun extrapolates this conclusion in large part from studying the regional history of North Africa. Within this specific historical context, Khaldun sees the Bedouin peoples, the nomadic tribes of the desert, time and again come and overthrow these dynasties of the Mediterranean cities along sort of the coast. And once one of these tribes establishes a new country as conquerors, they create a new dynasty, they then begin to increase the well-being of their own people, and in time these formerly nomadic types become a sedentary culture themselves, 
and the process repeats after a few generations. In the example of Timur, the great conqueror of Central Asia, Khaldun seemingly found a proof in his theory, uh, or a proof for his theory, we might say, on a grander scale, because Timur replicates this model across all of Central Asia, which was at that time the center of world civilization. And what I mean by that, um, I'm sort of basing this on the theory that's outlined in the book, The Silk Roads, in which the nexus of international trading is always shown to be the center of political power, of, of geopolitical power, and the center of geopolitical activity within a given era. And so the, the Central Asia at this time is the nexus of international trade. The steppe tribes, whether they were called Xiongnu, Tibetans, Huns, or most famously the Mongols, right, all, all at sort of different time periods, different steppe tribes would come and repeat this pattern as Khaldun perceived it by overwhelming the settled civilizations of the near and far east, empires like Persia or China. And over the centuries, sometimes they raided or conquered the civilizations of Europe, such as the Romans, the Byzantines, the Rus. Timur was the last iteration of a conqueror from the steppe. He saw himself as an inheritor of the legacy of Genghis Khan, Ibn Khaldun described him not as an unsophisticated brute, however, but as, quote, highly intelligent and perspicacious, addicted to debate and argumentation about what he knows and also what he does not know, end quote. So the nomadic person who lives outside the boundaries of civilization is not portrayed by Khaldun as being, say, physically superior and yet unintelligent, but rather as highly intelligent just in a different way, because the harshness of their existence demands an even higher intelligence than the sedentary people with, that their luxury um, are required to attain. You know, the sedentary person might be more, quote-unquote, um, educated, right? But this is the form of education that Nietzsche criticizes in on the use and abuse of history for life as being like encyclopedias of historic knowledge, right? And in that way, the barbarians usually are uneducated. But in terms of possessing every bit of knowledge or every skill that can be put into practice to survive in the world, they apply themselves to that knowledge with absolute dedication. And they're clear-sighted. They know what's valuable and what's a distraction. It would be a mistake to think of a man like Timur and the steppe warriors he commanded as dumb brutes. In fact, their intellect flourishes in the nomadic existence on the steppe. And someone like Nietzsche might argue that it's the way that we sedentary types apply our minds that actually should be called into question, that maybe we should treat with a little bit more skepticism. Khaldun writes in the prefatory discussion on human civilization in general, quote, We find that the inhabitants of fertile zones, where the products of agriculture and animal husbandry, as well as seasonings and fruits are plentiful, are, as a rule, described as stupid in mind and coarse in body. This is the case with those Berbers who have plenty of seasonings and wheat, as compared with those who lead a frugal life and are restricted to barley or dura, such as the Masmuda Berbers and the inhabitants of Asus and Gumara. The same applies in general to the inhabitants of the Maghrib, who have plenty of seasonings and fine wheat, as compared with the inhabitants of Spain, and whose country butter is altogether lacking and whose principal food is dura. The Spaniards are found to have a sharpness of intellect, a nimbleness of body, and a receptivity for instruction such as no one else has. The same also applies to the inhabitants of the rural regions of Maghrib as compared with the inhabitants of settled areas and cities. 
end quote. And then uh, skipping further down in the passage, quote, It should be known that the influence of abundance upon the body is apparent even in matters of religion and divine worship. The frugal inhabitants of the desert and those of the settled areas who have accustomed themselves to hunger and to abstinence from pleasures are found to be more religious and more ready for divine worship than people who live in luxury and abundance. Indeed, it can be observed that there are few religious peoples in towns and cities, inasmuch as people there are for the most part obdurate and careless, which is connected with the use of much meat, seasonings, and fine wheat. The existence of pious men and ascetics is, therefore, restricted to the desert, whose inhabitants eat frugally. Likewise, the condition of the inhabitants within a single city can be observed to differ according to the different distribution of luxury and abundance. It can also be noted that those people who, whether they inhabit the desert or settled areas and cities, live a life of abundance and have all the good things to eat, die more quickly than others when a drought or famine comes upon them. End quote. And he basically goes on to say that he thinks that perhaps starvation is not an absolute condition but a relative one, you could put it like that, that people who are accustomed to very little food can't starve from the same deprivation that might kill someone who is normally very well fed, that the people who make their stomachs accustomed to butter and meat and always being full and three meals a day are more likely to die when a famine hits than someone who subsists on dates and barely eats enough to survive, right? Sort of scrounging whatever they can out of the desert because you're not really experiencing an extreme reduction in your diet, right? Or in what you eat. You're used to famine. For you, it's just a minor shift, right? If that. And there may be some truth to this, not in the specifics, insofar as, you know, the physiology, the way Khaldun describes it, um, he seems to think it has to do with, like, the amount of moisture in your food and uh, that that is in and of itself a sort of bad thing or a weakening thing, a corrupting thing. And Khaldun even seems to think that luxurious food with a lot of seasoning is inherently uh, has a weakening effect. And this seems to be a view of physiology that's sort of based on, like, a balance of humors model, which isn't surprising given the era and perhaps luxurious food identified by Khaldun as super moist makes you, we might think of it as like it's super moist and soft. So it makes you moist and soft. It makes you spiritually moist. It's funny because I, I remember Heraclitus seemed to suggest something similar, right? That, you know, fire is life um, and energy and activity and so on. So he sees moisture or wetness as an element that weakens or sort of, uh, softens or degrades you that for example alcohol has a dampening effect on our psyche because being drunk is sort of like your soul getting wet right anyway matters of humors aside Khaldun is right on the broader point i think insofar as what we found in the places with the greatest advancement in urbanization and technology and general well-being is that declining religiosity right the abandonment of traditional roles and beliefs such that if you look at the places with the most well-being on earth, like the Scandinavian countries, they're the, also the most atheistic and um, people have abandoned their traditional roles and beliefs in droves. Um, you know, traditional beliefs, you might look at their declining r rates of religiosity um, and high rates of atheism of just like church attendance and, you know, that sort of thing. And then gender-wise, right, we look at those roles that are sort of the most gender equality we've seen in the world, right, in human history. And so um, all of these things are sort of abandoned. Um, so another thing he says, though, is that the overall aptitude of people who live on the edge 
or on the edge of the state of nature, right, versus the aptitudes of sedentary people. Um, what he says in the passages we just looked at is are so obvious that it's almost like a truism. It seems almost impossible to argue against it that human beings are anti-fragile, right? We get stronger the more we overcome challenges. So obviously, groups that exist in a harsher environment will be more capable. And so in terms of the various groups that live in North Africa, he divides them into the group of sedentary cultures and the Bedouins who live in the desert, right? He describes the Bedouin way of life as such, quote, The inhabitants of the desert adopt the natural manner of making a living, namely agriculture and animal husbandry. They restrict themselves to the necessary in food, clothing, and mode of dwelling, and to the other necessary conditions and customs. They do not possess conveniences and luxuries. They use tents of hair and wool, or houses of wood, or of clay and stone, which are not furnished. The purpose is to have shade and shelter, and nothing beyond that. They also take shelter in ca caves or caverns. The food they take is either little prepared or not prepared at all, save that it may have been touched by fire." End quote. Now, even though Ibn Khaldun seems to believe that the nomadic peoples are generally more apt in many ways than the sedentary people, he does make some disparaging remarks, uh, as I've mentioned, that are not entirely um, clear to me why he makes them um, in light of sort of the other comments he said. Because he says, among all the barbarians, the camel-herding nomads who are rather hostile to any settled people and are always sort of accordingly driven deeper into the desert by the militias whenever they clash with them. He says they've become, as a result, quote, the most savage human beings that exist, end quote. And he claims that when you compare them with sedentary people, they're like, quote, wild, untamable, untamable animals and dumb beasts of prey, end quote. Excuse me, wild, untamable animals and dumb beasts of prey. So the way you might assess their intelligence is all relative, I guess, because... He's also said that those who live in abundance are dulled in body as well as in mind. So wouldn't the people who live in the most savage conditions have the sharpest minds? I, I guess it doesn't work like that. I mean, one way I think we could interpret it is in the sense that they're totally uneducated and ignorant of the arts and sciences. But when it comes to skills of warfare or survival, they're incredibly sharp. Um, and so to give expression to the whole sort of pattern, the way Khaldun sees it is rather elegant. That the Bedouins, the apparently uncivilized people, are what he calls the reservoir of all civilization and all settled life. The desert is the basis upon which all these complex sedentary cultures emerge. And I love it because it takes the desert, the wilderness, and it calls it a reservoir, right? A reserve, a source of life. Um, it's oxymoronic and thus po poetic in a sense, right? Because we think of the desert as lifeless, but it's actually the source of life. Civilizations emerge from it. And then when they grow to an old age, the desert swallows them up again. It takes them back. So one's education in the arts and sciences, rather than setting him above the nomadic peoples, ought to be regarded as owing its very existence to the nomadic desert life. The desert is the origin and the precursor of all culture, that all civilization is founded by Bedouins. Obviously not every civil civilization on earth was actually founded by a North African desert tribe, but just to use the term Bedouin in a broader, more extended sense. We might talk about Bedouins as a category of human life, right? And the desert as the wilderness, the state of nature, the place beyond the comfort and security of the state, the frontier, the war zone, the wild, whatever, right? Khaldun writes in chapter two, section three, quote, 
Bedouins are the basis of, and prior to, cities and sedentary people. Man seeks first the bare necessities. Only after he has attained the bare necessities does he get to comforts and luxuries. The toughness of desert life precedes the softness of sedentary life. Therefore, urbanization is found to be the goal to which the Bedouin aspires. Through his own efforts, he achieves what he proposes to achieve in this respect. When he has obtained enough to be ready for the conditions and customs of luxury, he enters upon a life of ease and submits himself to the yoke of the city. This is the case with all Bedouin tribes. Sedentary people, on the other hand, have no desire for desert conditions, unless they are motivated by some urgent necessity or they cannot keep up with their fellow city dwellers. Evidence for the fact that Bedouins are the basis of and prior to sedentary people is furnished by investigating the inhabitants of any given city. We shall find that most of its inhabitants originated among Bedouins dwelling in the country and villages of the vicinity. Such Bedouins became wealthy, settled in the city, and adopted a life of ease and luxury, such as exists in the sedentary environment. End quote. And so, I, I, I like that uh, contrast there. Uh, all of the Bedouins want, they're always driving towards sedentary life, but the sedentary people never want to go back to the desert, right? We can see naturally why mankind would wish to proceed from desert conditions and into the city, um, but the sedentary people don't want to go back. They have no desire for desert conditions. Khaldun's description of why sort of reminds of Rousseau in some manner, right? Man is driven to seek for his comfort by this desire to escape from want um, for the betterment of his condition, we might say. And Khaldun lays this out at the very beginning of chapter one, where he writes that, quote, the power of the individual human being is not sufficient for him to obtain the food he needs and does not provide him with as much food as he requires to live, end quote. So Khaldun's theory in this regard is basically that the proof that God has ordained this pattern of the social order, as, you know, the social order always arises into being and then passes away, the reason why we know it was God who ordained this is that man as an individual creature cannot survive. Um, we can't survive on our own without expending energy very inefficiently. Uh, he talks about how much work an individual would have to undertake to grind all his own grain, how he'd have to craft all his tools and weapons himself. He'd have to do every job required to grow, harvest, and process the grain, and that the reward reaped by dividing labor between multiple people, on the other hand, is so great, so exponential, that mankind will always have to live by means of cooperation. That, you know, you might try to get by on your own, but when food gets really scarce, for instance, if the choice is to work together or starve, men will always work together. And so, quote, through cooperation, the needs of a number of persons, many times greater than their own number, can be satisfied, end quote. But the other side of the coin is what makes this pattern sort of come into being, right? Or the, the negative feedback loop come into being. Because once we create a society and produce a division of labor and harness the power of cooperation to attain our basic necessities, not only do we make more than we could as individuals, we end up making more than we need in order to feed everyone, right? The choice we have is either act as atomized individuals where we can't reliably get enough to eat or work as a group where we always generate a surplus, a huge surplus. And funnily enough, even though we can't see it in the moment, Khaldun would argue that down the line that produces its own danger. It's literally feast or famine. That's the choice. Surplus leads to luxury. 
And the examples of those who can resist the corrupting power of luxury are very few, meaning for the majority, the vast majority, abundance eventually weakens the group to the point of being unable to defend itself. And then you go from feast back to famine again. The language that Khaldun uses here is refreshingly blunt. In one section of chapter two, he goes so far as to say in the title, quote, Bedouins are closer to being good than sedentary people. I, I like this because in so many words, he's willing to say they're just better people, right? Go out on that, on that limb there. And here he seems to advance a similar case as Jean-Jacques Rousseau would. Um, he would put this forward during a much later time, you know, in the time of the Enlightenment. But the, yeah, the idea that there's na this natural goodness in man, so to speak, or that man's wickedness is something imposed upon him by society or nurtured by society and the social arrangements. Ibn Khaldun quotes the prophet Muhammad, who asserts that all men are born with a natural disposition, as he calls it. It is their parents that indoctrinate them into a certain way of thinking, a certain way of feeling or being. The city, as this man-made artifice, imparts this disposition, the disposition of the sedentary city dweller. It sort of shapes all of its inhabitants according to that blueprint. But men living out in nature will thereby have a more natural disposition that's not as shaped by the artifice of mankind. Perhaps something instructive to think about here for the Christians in the audience, or people with no background in Islam, uh, Islam does not have the same concept of original sin that's been created in, in the Christian psyche, right? Ever since the interpretation of St. Augustine became predominant. For the Muslims, human beings are not inherently stained with evil. Temptation is not itself a sin. They argue instead that human beings are originally both good and evil, that both options or both paths are available to us. Uh, Ibn Khaldun cites the Quran and a later passage, quoting from it that God leads man on both paths. He's placed both wickedness and the fear of God into all men. There's a similar concept in Hebrew uh, scripture of the good inclination and the wayward inclination within each person that it is essential that man be able to triumph over the evil inclinations, that it is good for us to have this choice to be good or evil, right? Having the choice, having the wayward inclination within us and having that option is actually um, a good thing, so to speak, right? We even can reinterpret the faults of mankind, at least to some extent, as being there for a reason and that it gives us the option to choose the good, right? That it wouldn't be laudable for us to choose the good unless we had the option to be wayward. And so from one perspective, one might say that the Muslims have more of a faith that human beings have this total freedom to act, uh, more so than the, the Christians do. Then again, some passages I've read in the Quran suggest this that more deterministic view, like that of the Calvinists, uh, passages where the sort of the absolute power of God, the absolute will of God is emphasized. So maybe some Muslims in the audience can help me understand this one. I would suspect it's probably the same contradiction that Christianity has to deal with between that absolute will of God and the free will of man. But we'll set all that aside, right? M Muslims don't have this idea that all human beings are inherently and irrevocably sinful. We're not perfect, obviously. There are obvious faults to human beings. But this isn't extrapolated into the idea that human beings are in their essence evil or predominantly or unalterably evil. There is the possibility of there being a good person, which doesn't exist in Christianity. In Christianity, we're all guilty. It's just that some people are forgiven, right? Um, so similarly to Rousseau, 
Ibn Khaldun asserts a sort of natural goodness, which is not dissimilar from the way Rousseau portrays the savage person. Um, you know, the savage person in Rousseau's writing is attuned to the natural state and thus made strong, but possessing natural traits of kindness or pity, right? So the noble savage, quote-unquote, in Rousseau's vision, even though he doesn't use that term, he still gives this sort of archetypal vision of the nomadic hunter-gatherer person pre-civilization in a fundamentally good or harmonious state of affairs with nature. But it's not that nature is just such a nice place, it's that he's been attuned to, tempered to the... Uh, harshness and privation of nature and has been adapted to it. And so he feels right at home within it, right? Um, Khaldun's portrayal, I think, is a little bit more developed than Rousseau's, even though it comes hundreds of years before him, because Ibn Khaldun portrays the wild person similarly as more adapted to the wilderness, but he doesn't portray them as inclined to peace, right? Some of the Bedouins he calls the most warlike and aggressive of you know, the entire human race, but they're not portrayed as naturally sinful. I think that's the key aspect that Ibn Khaldun recognizes the inclination to blame worthy deeds, deeds that one would call morally bad or sinful. They're nourished by the city or by the, um, uh, influence of the culture of the, uh, other human beings of the social group, right? Um, it's something created in culture rather than inborn in all people. And so he writes, quote, Bedouins may be as concerned with worldly affairs as sedentary people are. However, such concern would touch only the necessities of life and not luxuries, or anything causing or calling for desires and pleasures. The customs they follow in their mutual dealings are, therefore, appropriate. As compared with those of sedentary people, their evil ways and blameworthy qualities are much less numerous. They are closer to the first natural state and more remote from the evil habits that have been impressed upon the soul of sedentary people through numerous and ugly, blameworthy customs, end quote. So this is obviously moralistic and subjective to some extent, I guess, but it hammers home the idea of what Khaldun thinks luxury is so we can understand it as he does and the danger that it poses to society because the faults he mentions Let's take them out of the moral the uh, moral realm and put it into the psychological realm, i.e. absent a value judgment, right? We find much the same observation was made by Machiavelli and Nietzsche, that a man who obtains great wealth can't feel secure in it except by gaining more, that attainment of great wealth doesn't lead to greater satiety but to greater greed, and that this greed will consequently lead those driven by it to become less compassionate, less human-hearted, and less spiritual, and they will be satisfied with less and less. They'll need more and more to feel satisfied in life. More and more, they'll become accustomed to a certain level of material comforts, right? Uh, and so the next section is entitled, Bedouins are more disposed to courage than sedentary people. That's more about the softening aspect rather than the immoralizing aspect, we might say. So Khaldun writes, quote, The sedentary people have become used to laziness and ease. They are sunk in well-being and luxury. They have entrusted the defense of their property and their lives to the governor and ruler who rules them, and to the militia which has the task of guarding them. They find full assurance of safety in the walls that surround them, and the fortifications that protect them. No noise disturbs them, and no hunting occupies their time. They are carefree and trusting, and have ceased to carry weapons. 
successive generations have grown up in this way of life. They have become like women and children who depend upon the master of the house. Eventually, this has come to be a quality of character that replaces the natural disposition. The Bedouins, on the other hand, live apart from the community. They are alone in the country and remote from the militia. They have no walls or gates. Therefore, they provide their own defense and do not entrust it to or rely upon others for it. They always carry weapons. They watch carefully all signs of the road. They take hurried naps only when they are together in company or when they are in the saddle. They pay attention to the most distant barking or noise. They go alone into the desert, guided by their fortitude, putting their trust in themselves. Fortitude has become a character quality of theirs, and courage their nature. They use it whenever they are called upon or roused by an alarm. When sedentary people mix with them in the desert or associate with them on a journey, they depend on them. They cannot do anything for themselves without them. This is an observed fact. Their dependence extends even to the knowledge of the country, the directions, watering places, and crossroads. Man is a child of the customs and the things he has become used to. He is not the product of his natural disposition and temperament. The conditions to which he has become accustomed, until they have become for him a quality of character and matters of habit and custom, have replaced his natural disposition. If one studies this in human beings, one will find much of it, and it will be found to be a correct observation. End quote. I think Khaldun is just so fascinating here because he provides us with a potentially a new understanding of master and slave morality, or terms that are roughly analogous to it, but recontextualizing them as these moralities that cyclically emerge according to the conditions and perspectives of human beings at different places within the cycle that he's describing. That, as Nietzsche argues, our morality is who and what we are, the doer and the deed are inseparable, right? Um... I mean, if we must formally separate the two simply for the purposes of language or getting across our point here, then we might say we're free to choose our actions, but don't choose our nature. That's another way to say it. Um, all of this is just different phrasings of the idea that our, our view of the world flows from our place of perspective within the world. And so the self-reliant person will have a self-reliant worldview and manifest a way of life that is self-reliant. Meanwhile, the person who relies on the collective, who neglects war and entrusts his defense to others who could not therefore survive without the continuation of the social structure, he manifests a different morality, a completely different worldview, one which is based on obedience, on kindness, and interestingly enough, on what we might call individualism or vulgar individualism, because group feeling is no longer required for his survival. So in addition to master morality and slave morality, we have the terms Bedouin morality and Berberid morality, we might say, or nomadic morality versus city morality. The sentiments, feelings, and outlooks of those who are on the frontier versus those who are settled or who live a sedentary life. And so the Bedouin type of outlook is the original outlook. It's because it comes from the reservoir and the origin of all, of all cultures and civilizations, right? So it's self-affirmative and self-reliant, and that fits if we compare it to Nietzsche's concept of master morality. As regards the character of the Bedouin's Khaldun says a lot of the same things that Nietzsche does when he's sort of giving his admiration of the religiosity of the Greek aristocrats, that they have the ability to sacrifice and renounce, to put their virtue ahead of their own advantage. He says that the common people are the ones who are always concerned with what advantage will this gives. 
uh, will this give to me? Um, that the, you know, the Bedouins, they're not enticed by comforts as they view these things as dangers. That's another similarity to the way that Nietzsche talks about Greek culture. It's in a passage in Daybreak where he's talking about the antica morale, the entire morality of antiquity, and that it is almost the inverse of our modern morality and that they viewed comfort and safety as dangers. Um, and they, you know, viewed things like, uh, luxury as a danger, whereas, you know, they viewed madness as a virtue and warfare and competition as virtues and so on and how just starkly different their morality and their entire moral understanding was for ours. But just as the Greek city-states eventually produced this elite over many generations, which no longer appears noble, right? They no longer have this unquestionable divine origin for their authority, and they no longer manifest those virtues, it calls into question the entire order of rank. And um, as we'll remember at the beginning, uh, Ibn Khaldun sees as essential to human social organization in general, Asabia and he says that there's the, this natural tendency for human beings to dominate over one another. It's very similar in many respects to Nietzsche's entire conception of how the collective works, that there is this collective consciousness, this collective moral reality, these collective moral intuitions, that the entire collectivity of mankind, on the other hand, is still based on this order of rank idea, on this commanding and obeying um, sort of function of the will, um, is maybe one way to put it. So... It's collectivity as power, but not in like a hippie egalitarian sense, right? In a hierarchical sense. And so that entire hierarchy is called into question as those at the top don't actually appear to deserve their position at the top. That's the most straightforward way to put it. So in the same way that this happens in ancient Greece, um, leading to all that political turmoil and civil wars and eventually the external conquest of Greece by the, you know, first all the Greek city-states by the Macedonians, and then all of the Greek world by the Romans, um, the Bedouins follow the same pattern. They eventually become like the city people after they triumph over them, right? They themselves are met with revolution or overthrow. And so after the whole drama is played out, all is returned to the desert again, ashes to ashes and uh, dust to dust or sand to sand, I guess, whatever we want to say. So we have that inevitable slave revolt in morality. That is what the morality of the city represents in some sense. We might compare it to the Christianity that took hold like wildfire in the cities of the late Roman Empire whereas the people of the countryside remained these conservative pagans of the old religion. And what happens shortly after that Christianization of the Roman Empire um, is that Rome falls. And you could see that as more of a sign or a symptom of the decline rather than the cause, um, which is what Nietzsche always cautions us to do. So the Bedouins are, roughly speaking, Dionysian in some way, right? They're the self-reliant um, desert dwellers, they live in tune with nature, not as in a peaceful Edenic paradise, but as people attuned to the reality of constant struggle and warfare. Survival is a constant struggle for them. And the sedentary city folk, the Berbers and others, are like the slave moralists because they're people who throng in the cities and they depend on the protection of the collective and of the system. They rely on the law. They pay others to defend them. They depend on the system continuing to function for their survival. And if the system were to break down, the atomized individuals will not be self-reliant. They'll actually be unable to um, either be self-reliant or to coordinate as a group in order to exercise power on the world. The only thing holding them together, therefore, is sort of the walls of the city, right? Both literally and metaphorically. The walls here in a metaphorical sense 
standing for the systems of taxation and raising militias and the market, which is protected from fraud and theft and so on. All of this that depends on the state for its existence. Um, but because everyone within these city walls has now become the center of their own world because they don't have the uh, constant pressure to have to coordinate for their own survival and to express their power in a collective way, none of them have that ethos anymore of wanting to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the collective's existence. Nietzsche would say they've lost their capacity for commanding and obeying. And since there's no selection mechanism against them, um, or at least it's extremely lessened because they're protected against it to whatever degree, they begin to see any natural selection pressure, any external selection pressures against them as evil, and the job of society is to protect them from this pressure. That becomes the morality that they have. They become weak and helpless, and that eventually produces a morality that therefore praises weakness and helplessness and declares any attack upon the weak or helpless to be evil, because naturally, that is the morality that they would adopt, right? So Khaldun continues in section 6, he's sounding the same note as Nietzsche would many uh, centuries later, and Machiavelli as well. He puts forward the idea of the order of rank between individuals and society as a sort of law of nature, as Nietzsche would do. But like Machiavelli, he looks favorably upon a regime that gives liberty to its subjects as a sign of the strength of that regime and the strength of the subjects that it governs. Khaldun writes, quote, As a rule, man must necessarily be dominated by someone else. If the domination is kind and just, and the people under it are not oppressed by its law and restrictions, they are guided by the courage or cowardice that they possess in themselves. They are satisfied with the absence of any restraining power. Self-reliance eventually becomes a quality natural to them. They would not know anything else. If, however, the domination with its laws is one of brute force and intimidation, it breaks their fortitude and deprives them of their power of resistance as a result of the inertness that develops in the souls of the oppressed, as we shall explain. When laws are enforced by means of punishment, they completely destroy fortitude because the use of punishment against someone who cannot defend himself generates in that person a feeling of humiliation that, no doubt, must break his fortitude. Thus greater fortitude is found among the savage Arab Bedouins than among people who are subject to laws. Those who rely on laws and are dominated by them can scarcely defend themselves at all against hostile acts. This is the case with students whose occupation it is to study and learn from teachers and religious leaders and who constantly apply themselves to instruction and education in very dignified gatherings. This situation and the fact that it destroys the power of resistance and fortitude must be understood. End quote. And after this, Ibn Khaldun sort of goes on to talk about the men around Muhammad and how even though they were very studious and religiously educated, they didn't compromise their own fortitude. And his reasoning for this is that they imposed a restraining influence on themselves out of their own willpower. This sort of like the people who are able to um, obey themselves, as Nietzsche talked about, right? And so in substantive terms, their education didn't come in the form of institutions or professors. And he quotes from Umar, who said that those who are not disciplined by the religious laws are not educated by God. And that in so many words, Khaldun believes that these great individuals, these men who are like, like Muhammad's apostles, right? And I, I have no idea if it's appropriate to use that word in the Muslim context, but that seems to me to be the nearest concept for me to grab from Christianity to explain the group, particular group of people that Khaldun is talking about. 
Muhammad's apostles followed this self-imposed discipline. And the very thing that happens over time as people become sedentary is that they lose that by yielding more and more of that self-imposed discipline to the force of law, by abdicating, right? So he writes that, quote, the influence of religion decreased among men, and they came to use restraining laws. The religious law became a branch of learning and a craft to be acquired through instruction and education. People turned to sedentary life and assumed the character trait of submissiveness to law. This led to a decrease in their fortitude, end quote. And an interesting aspect there, right? And a huge part of Islam is submission to God, submission to the law of God. But here he's saying by having to submit to earthly laws, when that religious command to submit to the will of God, when you're not strong enough to follow that out of your self-imposed will, you will uh, be forced to sort of abdicate your your will to the, what would you say, the earthly power structure, right? Which will then make you submissive, but uh, it will lead to a decrease in your fortitude, right? It's. I just wanted to sort of like point out how you, you might say, well, what is an Islam religion about submission? But there's sort of a lot made about like submitting to the law out of your own free will, out of imposing that restraint, out of that ability to command yourself, which is actually very much in the vein of what Nietzsche is talking about, having that sense of self-control or self-reliance. Um, another thing Emerson talked about, right? Self, self-reliance. And that anytime you abdicate that, it atrophies. It's like a muscle, right? Now, this talk of self-reliance and fortitude might incline us, especially here in America, to categorize the Bedouin morality in terms of individualism. But I think it's helpful that we talked about this a little bit last time when we talked about Stephen Hicks characterizing Nietzsche as a collectivist. I think it's important to understand that neither label really fits Nietzsche, and I think it's because he perceives, Nietzsche perceives, that individualism in the true sense is necessary for collectivism in the true sense. You can't have one without the other, such that even though the Bedouins are the most self-reliant, it's the fact of their self-reliance that allows them to meaningfully enter into cooperative action with one another, since they actually have the option to do otherwise, right? Um, the relationship is based on mutual voluntary trust, deriving from that perception of roughly equal strength between the members of the group. And meanwhile, the city people, even though it's ostensibly a collectivist morality or herd morality, as Nietzsche might have derided it, I think it's instructive to bring in Nietzsche's observation and genealogy of morality. The people outside of the nobility are what he calls like an indeterminate mass. Like he compares them to motes of dust and not true individuals. And that the first real collective feeling, the first class consciousness, comes from the collective feeling of power of the aristocrats. So individualism and collectivism emerge hand in hand within the aristocratic sort of mindset and ethos. And the common people have neither. That with the absence of their self-reliance, the sedentary people with that same token have an absence of individuality. And with that absence of individuality, they have no ability for collective action. And so to talk about collective action here, or just collectivity in general, uh, like let's return to that concept of asabia or group feeling. The group's desire to dominate or, or achieve conquest through the individual, as Talby described it, or to realize its power in the individual the shared feelings and sentiments that bind or link the members of the group together. Khaldun recognizes that first and foremost, what increases the group's asabia is the external pressure against it, and that the more the demands of survival and the challenges of the natural world 
present themselves to the group, the more they'll be forced to cooperate in order to ensure their continued existence, which will exercise that ability for cooperative power. And so he writes, quote, The hamlets of the Bedouins are defended against outside enemies by a tribal militia composed of noble youths of the tribe who are known for their courage. Their defense and protection are successful only if they are a closely knit group of common descent. This strengthens their stamina and makes them feared since everybody's affection for his family and his group is more important than anything else. End quote. And then a little further down, we'll look at one more line. Quote, nothing can be achieved without fighting for it. And for fighting, one cannot do without group feeling. End quote. So, asabia is necessary for warfare. And of course it is. Every military requires coordination and acting as a tight-knit group. He says that the Bedouins have such a high asabia because they fight in these close-knit groups of people who have ties of blood, and we find such ties of blood in all the peoples that live together on the outskirts of civilization. But more than that, however, all their friends and loved ones are those with whom they must fight and die, and that raises their overall level of group feeling towards one another. Because it, it preserves this idea of the reality of the group above the individual. It's more closely perceived that the more they cooperate, the more they're able to repel threats and exercise their power in the world. But the situation in the cities is totally different. As Khaldun describes, um, the fortifications and the walls repel the attacks, and there's still a mutual aggression and hostility that men feel for one another, he believes, in this endless struggle for wealth and resources. That's not abated at all by the city life. It's simply restrained by laws, right? And so everyone is compelled by force to behave himself or herself, but that atrophies their ability to self-impose that, um, the way that someone might do in an honor culture, right? Um, in a culture where you could be um, dueled to the death if you dishonor someone. Uh, there's no law around or no common authority. You simply have to respect all the members of the other clans or tribes because you know that um, if you dishonor them, they're going to have to get some recompense of that, right? And it'll be some sort of war or intertribal conflict. And so Khaldun writes, quote, um, speaking of the city people, quote, they are thus prevented by the influence of force and governmental authority from mutual injustice, end quote. Um, okay, so what we see then is that the, in that climate of self-reliance, Asabia increases. Um, in that climate of true individual um, power, right, group power also increases, but the less reliant upon themselves and their own power that a group becomes, the more asabia decreases, such that the sociable human being, after four or five generations in the city, begins to lack group feeling altogether with the people who live around him. They don't fight together. Uh, they don't share blood ties together. Khaldun spends a great deal of time on that topic of blood ties, which I'm mostly going to skip over, but he thinks there's really no replacement for the asabia of the family. Um, blood is thicker than water, right? That sort of thing. And the nature of the city life will always diminish that because families intermingle and become sort of indeterminate and sexual morality will wane and people will have sex out of marriage and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, it's true that bonds of family are sort of like a natural source of asabia, but we can see, I would just put forward the argument, you can see from historical example that it's not necessary for asabia. Uh, we see it, to use a near example, in the in the, um, the Mamluks, right? The famous slave class of warriors that came to eventually hold, you know, 
offices of rulership, formed their own states and sultanates, and so on. But basically, they were originally a cast of warriors who descended from all sorts of peoples, Turks, Greeks, and Slavs, uh, but they managed to found their own state and become a political force because by fighting together as warriors, um, they crafted a, or, or created for themselves a high degree of asabia. They, these were men that didn't have a broader family tie to one another. But what really creates asabia is that feeling of shared destiny that, um, you know, uh, it's like the, the scorpion and the frog example, right? Maybe it's a bad example. But the, the scorpion and the frog share a common destiny. Maybe the scorpion and the frog uh, parable is basically about don't ever get into a common destiny with someone who <laughs> can't be trusted to understand that or to uphold that, right? But uh, it's like if I go down, you go down. That's what a shared destiny is. It's a very, it's not an abstract concept. It's a very real, very existential relationship. Um, and it's the relationship that people have soldiers in a unit together in wartime, for example. Um, and so the individuals have to act in concert to secure success or failure. And the relevant unit of competition is the group rather than competition within the group. Competition within the group basically eats away at Asabia. This is why Plato wanted to replicate the military aristocracy of Sparta in order to realize his ideal republic, but he wanted to take away all property or avenues of competition through wealth because that creates an internal competition for power that erodes that shared feeling of destiny. Uh, and again, that all becomes all the more rampant in the cities. The people feel their safety is guaranteed by the law. Co cooperation with their neighbors becomes irrelevant to their survival and the pursuit of personal advantage then becomes the only thing they care about. So although Asabia is inevitably concerned with human beings at the collective level or the group level, Khaldun distinguishes his ideas from the socialistic ones insofar as he sees royal authority as the necessary sort of end goal of group feelings, the final product of it, right? He writes that, quote, By dint of their nature, human beings need someone to act as a restraining influence and mediator in every social organization in order to keep its members from fighting, end quote. So at a, at a glance here, it might seem like a bit contradictory in that we were, before we were talking about relying on ourselves and our own willpower, as the Bedouins do, right? Rather than those city folk who are restrained by laws. But here, Ibn Khaldun seems to imply that the Bedouins, as those with the highest asabia, will produce a leader which restrains or mediates among them, right? I think if we're going to be charitable, we could say maybe the difference is that the mediating force among the sedentary cultures is the law itself, conceived of as a sort of abstract, whereas for the Bedouin, the mediator is a personality or a person, right? And that, furthermore, even though the Bedouin style of civilization creates group feeling through individual self-reliance, there is simply something about the structure of human social relationships that sort of requires the group to um, invest its energies into one person as a representative. You, you could compare it to the Rousseauian legislator or something like that. They incarnation of the collective will, the general will. But we can plainly see that Khaldun is thinking along the lines of an intractable order of rank as woven into the fabric of human nature, so to speak, uh, which is also the way Nietzsche tends to think about it. In any case, Ibn Khaldun explains it this way, quote, when a person sharing in the group feeling has reached the rank of chieftain and commands obedience, and when he then finds the way open towards superiority and the use of force, he follows that way because it is something desirable. He cannot completely achieve his goal except with the help of the group feeling, 
which causes the others to obey him. And thus, royal superiority is a goal to which group feeling leads. End quote. So we have sort of a, <laughs> what, what might you say? You might interpret a will to power perception in, into that uh, idea that it is inherently something desirable to ascend the hierarchy and do uh, have a greater share of command. We might also say that this ties into the idea I was trying to articulate earlier about the great man theory of history is still being dependent upon the collective, and then it's dependent on this power structure, this hierarchy. Um, you know, as he says here, he cannot achieve his goal except with the help of the group feeling, which causes others to obey him. And then finally, this is why there's always a dynasty established in the city life. And it should be noted, there is that division between noble and common here in Ibn Khaldun's work, just as it is in Nietzsche's. Um, for Ibn Khaldun, it's probably more of a product of his time, right? But it's important insofar as one might say, I could hear the objection like, well, surely not everyone in the city life is um, living in luxury, right? Every We've been talking about the hierarchy, right? And order of rank. Surely there are some people who are poor or who live you know, exposed to privation or have to beg for their existence or blah, blah, blah. That's certainly true. But if anything, Khaldun's point would be that the people who are in charge of the society are going to live in luxury, right? Um, that really is the issue, that the people at the top of the hierarchy um, are going to be uh, innervated. They're going to be weakened, and uh, that's going to dissolve, be one of the things that dissolves the group feeling. So Khaldun says that even when the social structure is created for many different houses who may ostensibly be equals, eventually one will become more prominent than the, the others, right? The differences in their strength or their influence will be perceived, and there's always this tendency to rank order them, uh, to arrange the social structure in a way that's sensible to human nature, and in a way that kind of reminds me at least somewhat of the Hegelian master and slave dialectic. Just by close contact, human groups will make themselves dominant and subservient to one another because by having the defeated group like acknowledge the greatness of the victori the victorious ones, right? And to be subservient to them, it increases the consciousness of power on the part of the dominant group. And so they'll naturally desire to expand the consciousness of their power. And again, Khaldun thinks this was ordained by God. And certainly in a monotheistic religious outlook, the hierarchical structure probably makes a lot of sense, right? A lot of intuitive sense. Accordingly, he says that the greatest capacity for royal authority exists within the savage nations on earth. He writes that, quote, while a nation is savage, its royal authority extends farther, end quote. And he includes the Bedouins in that assessment, as well as the Zanata and similar groups. That's because the members of these groups have the strength to fight other nations. And he writes, quote, all the regions and places are the same to them. Therefore, they do not restrict themselves to possession of their own in neighboring regions. They do not stop at the borders of their horizon, end quote. So although Khaldun kind of contradicts himself since he later says royal authority is altogether lacking in the Bedouins because they're almost so wild that they, you know, they live so far from civilization that they lack the tendency to organize themselves for the domination of others. Like, I'm trying to exactly work out some of these contradictions in his thought. I mean, we might say they dominate in battle, but they don't really form states because they're the least willing to subordinate themselves to one another. Or you might say the point at which they form a state state is the point at which they stop being Bedouins, right? Um, and so their total feeling of self-reliance seems to kind of like prevent 
that group feeling from forming a royal authority over them as long as they're living out in the deserts. But then in other passages, Khaldun says that the Bedouins, in their submission to their sheikhs, are like the exemplars of royal authority. So I'm not quite sure how to interpret this. Maybe it's just a genuine contradiction, because on the one hand, he seems to suggest that group feeling is generated among wild peoples, and in other places, he suggests that it isn't. Um, it's sort of like his remarks on the, the intellect of the Bedouins too, right? Maybe we could understand this, though, through another passage in the Mukadima where he says that the Bedouins really need some sort of religious prophet or religious figure in order to become effective in forming states and dominating others, and that their great leaders have always had a religious uh, aura to them, and that he says it's absolutely essential for them to have some sort of religious influence that wipes away their wildness and introduces some form of internal restraint. And since religion... And the Islamic context is such a powerful social force, the thing that orders states and orders the people according to the proper morality, the proper way to live, it's the tie that binds the people together, right? We could see the attainment of a religious feeling among the Bedouin as a sign of that rising asabia amongst them. But of course, what happens, royal authority is dependent on the group feeling, and as the group gains ascendance and dominates more and more groups, makes more and more people subservient, they acquire more wealth and thus more luxury, right? And the corruption starts from there. And prosperity and abundance become their very undoing. Uh, Khaldun writes, quote, The toughness of desert life is lost. Group feeling and courage weaken. Members of the tribe revel in the well-being that God has given them. Their children and offspring grow too proud to look after themselves or to attend to their own needs. They have disdain also for the other things that are necessary in connection with group feeling. This finally becomes a character trait and a natural characteristic of theirs. Their group feeling and courage decrease in the next generations. Eventually, group feeling is altogether destroyed. Thus, they invite their own destruction. The greater their luxury and the easier the life they enjoy, the closer they are to extinction, not to mention their lost chance of securing royal authority. End quote. Now, he goes into more details about what this does to the authority of the ruling classes in the subsequent sections of the text. And in many ways, we see that Nietzsche's understanding is close to Khaldun's insofar as he sees that winnowing away of the virtue of the nobility in the face of capitalism, which is basically what Khaldun is speaking of here, right? Since capitalism really only gets going within that protected shield of the state. Uh, you know, when you take the market out of the anarchy of the desert wastes, right? Because in the desert wastes, you don't have any significant trade of anything. You have nothing to protect you against fraud, right? Anything you can scrounge is absolutely valuable to your survival. And usually the strong just take what they want from the weak anyway. And so the market exists always within the walls of the city. And that's one of the only places it can exist. To have a market, you need a state and you need somebody to mint the coins and so on. And within the protection of the state and its laws, Asabia always weakens. And in the possession of the abundance that the market creates, Asabia weakens. And this produces a different kind of elite than the one that was produced in the desert. The good qualities in the nobility attest that they arose among a people with a group feeling, indicating that the nobility over sedentary cultures still inherit some of those traits of their nomadic origins. Quote, Whenever we observe people who possess group feeling and who have gained control over many lands and nations, we find that in them an eager desire for goodness and good qualities, such as generosity, the forgiveness of error, tolerance toward the weak, hospitality toward guests, 
the support of dependents, maintenance of the indigent, patience in adverse circumstances, faithful fulfillment of obligations, liberality with money for the preservation of honor, respect for the religious law, and for the scholars who are learned in it, end quote, and so on and so forth, right? Now, what does he say in contrast about the elite who arises in a sedentary culture or what it becomes over many generations, right? When the group feeling has been leached out and now the origin of the nobility is within that sedentary culture that their ancestors created rather than the desert from which their ancestors emerged. Well, he says, quote, vice versa, when God wants a nation to be deprived of royal authority, he causes its, its members to commit blameworthy deeds and practice all sorts of vices. This will lead to the complete loss of their political virtues, which will continue to be destroyed until they no longer exercise royal authority. Someone else will exercise it in their stead. This is to constitute an insult to them, and that the royal authority God has given them and the good things he has placed at their disposal are taken away from them. Upon close investigation, many such instances will be found among the nations of the past. End quote. And there's a beautiful set of lines about this process in section 21 of chapter 2, where Khaldun again treats the issue of the social structure like a, sort of a vital organism with a, a vigorous youthful beginning, and that like responsible button-down middle age, and then senility and death. He writes that, quote, Time gets the upper hand over the group in power. Their prowess disappears as a result of their senility. The duties of the dynasty sapped their energy. Time feasts on them, as their energy is exhausted by well-being and their vigor drained by the nature of luxury. They reach their limit, the limit that is set by the nature of human urbanization and political superiority." End quote. And he writes that this is all the doing of God and that this has happened again and again as evidence for that. This happened in Persia. It happened in Greece. Quote, when Kyanid rule was wiped out, the Sasanians ruled after them. Eventually, God permitted them to be destroyed by the Muslims. The same was also the case with the Greeks. Their rule was wiped out and transferred to the Romans. This is how God proceeds with his servants and creatures. All this has its origin in group feeling, which differs in different groups. Luxury wears out royal authority and overthrows it. Eventually, a great change takes place in the world, such as the transformation of a religion or the disappearance of a civilization or something else willed by the power of God. Then royal authority is transferred from one group to another to the one that God permits to affect that change. End quote. There's echoes here, or... Me echoes is the wrong word. Uh, just similarities I see between um, what Khaldun is talking about and the, what the Chinese called the mandate of heaven, right? Or the divine right of kings is the way they talked about it in Europe. Um, that there's sort of, we should see the transition of power over the decades and centuries as just the sort of natural cyclical course of things as ordained by God. The third chapter, it reminds me even more of Machiavelli and I wish we could cover more of the entire book. There's only really so much we can talk about in sort of covering this in one episode, right? I, I do think it's useful for us to take in these broad introductory ideas of, you know, Asabia, how it establishes authority, how Asabia relates to self-reliance and social cohesion, how it fluctuates, the negative feedback loops that sort of um, govern this cyclical theory of history. Um, 
But when Khaldun proposes this, it isn't just based on a feeling or intuition or that he just thinks it sounds good. It's because these structural demographic factors that produce a pattern, just like the water cycle, right, or the circulating of currents in the ocean or the swelling and decline of animal populations, like everything else we see in nature, human social life is this ever dancing dynamic, right? And so Khaldun gets even more precise when he asserts that the life of a dynasty doesn't extend beyond three generations. The first generation retains the desert qualities, as he calls them, and as such they maintain order and subordination of others. They still have the toughness and the savagery of the desert, right? Then the second generation changes from that desert attitude to the sedentary culture. It's The second generation is the one that witnesses that change. People become used to obedience. They become unused to having to fight to defend themselves. And because the desert it's not so remote from them, though. They still maintain some of the old qualities and traditions. They still have direct personal contact with the first generation, right? Khaldun writes, quote, They live in the hope that the conditions that existed in the first generation may come back, or they live under the illusion that those conditions still exist, end quote. The third generation, then, completely forgets the desert attitude. They forget the period of desert life and its toughness, quote, as if it had never existed, End quote. This is where the group feeling begins to vanish. People become cowardly. Even the leader depends on other people to support and defend him. And Khaldun then says that it's in the fourth generation that the royal prestige is destroyed. So three generations is about 150 years, according to Khaldun's reckoning. And therefore, if the destruction happens sometime in the fourth generation, we might say a state has a lifespan, as he reckons it, lasting from about 150 to 200 years, give or take. That's the natural lifespan of a state. And Khaldun says that it corresponds to the lifespan of an individual, quote, it grows up and passes into an age of stagnation and thence into retrogression, end quote. So there's so much more here, so many considerations on jurisprudence, on the political offices and the religious education going on at his time, the proper ways of maintaining Asabia beyond the seeming age limit, the improper ways of trying to hold on to it. There's an entire chapter on economics, various trades and profit and how it produces abundance, and so on and so forth. And I encourage everybody out there, if you're interested, to pick up a copy or find a free version online and uh, dive into the Mukhadima. It's very fascinating work, especially if you haven't read anything outside the Western canon. Perfect introduction to uh, Arabian philosophy, I think. What I see in Ibn Khaldun, and why I wanted to bring in at least this introductory glance at his ideas is to show this kind of view of history that we have seen in Thucydides, in Machiavelli, in Nietzsche, among others. This kind of attempt at not just describing the events that happened, but actually explaining them. That can be found here in a completely different philosophical canon, from a different religious and social framework. And so what I like about the approach of an Ibn Khaldun, or a Thucydides, is that invitation to take a step back from our moralized interpretations of history and human affairs, um, and to take a step back from the immensely outsized importance that we place into our own individual free will and the actions of individuals. Step back from the partisan arguments of our day, from all provincial and historically contingent perspectives, and take in the whole picture, to see the operation of the entire pattern, the entire dynamic, to understand ourselves in our own political and historical struggles as still acting within the shape or contours of those same patterns and laws and thus to gain a distance on it, to gain a sense of untimeliness, to regard our history 
and our politics more scientifically, more from the bird's eye perspective, right? But of course, from the modern angle, maybe some of his claims might seem quite broad or maybe overreaching or overgeneralizing. I could see those sorts of objections. So I want to take it to the next level. I want to look next week at the work of a person who's taking the wisdom of Khaldun and attempting to realize it through the modern scientific process, to create a modern science of history, whereby the hypotheses of Ibn Khaldun could actually be falsified or verified. This is, of course, controversial, as it always will be, for many of the reasons that we outlined at the beginning. But next week, we're going to dive into Cleodynamics, the new attempted science of history, but forward by Peter Turchin. Join me then, friends. Until next time... Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.